afternoon and welcome to the COVID Calls. This is the 28th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject is COVID-19 and the law, and my guest is law professor Kathy Bergen. We also have an update on the public health situation in Philadelphia with Esther Chernak. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter at US of Disaster. And you can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics and please do suggest yourself. And I've been pleased that people are starting to take me up on that. Had some really great outreach um, from journalists and from researchers who are suggesting topics and also suggesting themselves. Please feel free to do that. This is a resource for the research community and the journalism community. Tomorrow, we are going to talk about public health in history with a special focus on Philadelphia. And I'm really pleased We'll have two guests, David Barnes from the University of Pennsylvania and Michael, Del Michael Udell from Drexel University. As of today, there are 2,622,571 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 2,544,769 cases yesterday. 839,836 of those cases are in the United States, up from 814,587 yesterday. There are now a total of 46,079 deaths reported by Johns Hopkins in the United States, up from 43,796 reported yesterday. I hope you had a chance to listen to my discussion with Kathleen Tierney yesterday. If not, please do catch it on SoundCloud on the COVID Calls podcast, or you can watch it. The YouTube live video is um, available for you to check out anytime. And I mentioned um, this a little bit in my discussion with Lori Peake, which is another one of the conversations that I had that really expanded my thinking. You know, Kathleen Tierney, just to say a little bit more about her, um, when I was um, a young researcher and working on my first book project, she was extremely generous with her time uh, and I was writing my book, The Disaster Experts. She opened the National, the Natural Hazard Center to me. She gave me extensive interviews and she really expanded my thinking about what a disaster actually is. Not a thing, not a measure, not an event, but a process. And as she talked about it yesterday, a revelation, something that reveals the fissures and the cracks in society as it is. She did that for me again yesterday. And there's one quote that, I mean, there's so many quotable things from yesterday's discussion, but one that has really stuck with me. She said this, when I asked her um, to what was needed in this particular moment, she said, the solution to building resilience to disasters doesn't come out of the emergency management community or the policy community, it comes out of something bigger where we are enabling people to have the capacities and capabilities to be adaptable. And that includes, she said, the capability to engage in collective action to better their circumstances. I think Kathleen Tierney is right. This is the type of disaster that not only reveals historical inheritances, but it serves as a lever to making something new. 
I'm coming to agree with Kathleen Tierney that the ways people are relating, the ways they're working together, sharing, sacrificing is inspiring. I know we've been seeing videos of protesters at, uh, at state houses and with their signs and things like that, but I think that is a, a, a very, very, very small percentage up against a much larger percentage of Americans who are exhibiting the ultimate in, in what we call in disaster research pro-social behavior. I think it may also indicate some sort of a new social contract in America. Kathleen Tierney's final comments about the importance of this moment for researchers, especially young researchers, also moved me. And I want to continue to feature emerging research and young researchers whenever possible on COVID calls. And in that spirit, that's going to be the second part of our conversation today with Kathy Bergen. We're going to talk about a really exciting and emerging area of disaster research, and that has to do with disaster law. But before we get to that, I am excited to bring back to COVID calls Dr. Esther Chernak. Esther is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at Drexel University School of Public Health, and she has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. Prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Esther served in the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. And this is uh, her third appearance on COVID calls. And I can't begin to thank her for all of her time and expertise. And um, people have been saying, when are you going to have Esther Chernak back? Uh, and so I'm happy to say also, she's agreed that this will not be her last visit too. So we're really having this as a continuing feature of the COVID calls. Esther, how are you? Well, thank you. Happy to be here. So what news can you bring us from Philadelphia and COVID? So uh, today, Philadelphia, um, uh, during, during the health commissioner's press conference, announced that they've exceeded the 10,000 case mark. Um, so in the six weeks since they've been tracking, and measuring, and monitoring this outbreak in Philadelphia, uh, there have been over 10,000 cases now, which is a sad, number, a sad threshold to cross, and I suspect one that will leave in the dust pretty quickly because cases are continuing to climb. Um, there, the city in Philly, 1.5 million people, is seeing around 400 cases a day. Uh, some days it's more, some days it's less, and I think we still don't have enough data to say whether we've plateaued, whether we've, you know, whether the rate of increase is slowed. I think we're still not out of the woods. Happily, the city still has hospital capacity, although there are specific hospitals that are full up. Overall, I think there's there's capacity in just med surge beds and ICU beds around 25-30%, which is a great thing. Um, the number of deaths is roughly 25 a day, which is still concerning. Um, and so I think the city is at a place where I think it's hoping that this is a plateau and it's hoping that it will begin to start to see a drop in cases, but I think we're not sure where we are at the moment. And I think within Philadelphia, um, the two most astonishing and really disturbing things are the huge um, racial and ethnic and uh, socioeconomic disparities with respect to the impact of this outbreak, particularly racial disparities, and the large numbers of, um, of hospitalizations and deaths among elderly, particularly nursing home patients. In Philly, as well as the state of Pennsylvania, over 50% of all of the deaths are in nursing home residents. And I think the city is struggling to get on top of 
the outbreaks that are taking place in, in nursing homes and other congregate settings. Um, and my I think my sense is that that is consuming so many of the public health resources in the city that um, we talk about, you know, contact tracing and expanding testing. Um, and there are, I, I, I would be surprised if there are the resources to do that in community settings because so many of the epidemiologic resources are going towards managing nursing home outbreaks. And that's clearly something that the city, and I suspect cities around the country are going to have to get on top of um, as we manage this. So you, you mean that, the, I want to get into both of those pieces of that, so let's start with the nursing homes. You mean that to, to meet the, the need of testing and support in nursing homes, that's going to, that any testing materials we would need that we might consider for other uses are going to surge into that part of the population at this point? I, I think there's, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there's clearly a need to, to address the out of control epidemic within nursing homes and the huge and horrific consequences that transmission in nursing homes has. Um, and, and to do that, I think you have to be much more aggressive about testing than we currently are being. Um, you know, I think there are, they're trying to be aggressive folks around the country are trying to be aggressive in terms of containing it, in terms of monitoring people who work in nursing homes. Um, but I don't think that's going to work. I think we've seen that there's too much asymptomatic transmission in the community. And I think unless we start actually aggressively testing people who work in nursing homes, uh, doing aggressive uh, testing once cases are identified in nursing homes, we're not going to get on top of it. And I think that's just part of what has to happen with respect to expanding testing overall to contain this? In some sort of, uh, if there is such a thing, an ordinary disaster situation, that would be enough. I mean, we think about the, in France, you know, the heat waves and that situation several years ago where they had the August heat wave and so many elderly um, people died in Paris. And same situation in Chicago, um, you know, it was about 15 years ago now where they had the heat wave and people died. I mean, that alone is horrifying enough to, to register our attention. Have you been worried that this was coming? I mean, this seems to have caught a lot of people somehow off guard. Couldn't we have expected that nursing homes would be a center of, of high mortality rates in the midst of this pandemic? Absolutely. I think the minute, the minute that the Chinese CDC published the data around 15% um, you know, of their cases being above the age of 75 or 80 and the high case fatality, that was, I think, the case fatality rate among that age group. Um, it was clear to me that nursing homes were going to be the most vulnerable facilities in the country. Um, and I think you saw that in Seattle. You know, our first cluster of cases in Seattle, um, you know, were community-based transmission, but, you know, that was the first city in the country that had major issues in nursing homes. Um, and it's, I think that's just, unfortunately, that trend has continued here. Um, and I think it's totally predictable. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that made it challenging is that we really underestimated the magnitude and significance of asymptomatic transmission. Mm -hmm. Folks thought, well, if you could just monitor for illness and keep sick people from working and limit visitation, you could keep it out of nursing homes. But I don't think that's sufficient. I think we know people go to work when they're sick, particularly people who have low paid jobs where they can't take days off from work without losing their jobs. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when people you know, are asymptomatic and going to work, it's impossible to prevent it. So I think, I think some of the nursing home stuff was predictable. I think the asymptomatic transmission, which was harder to anticipate, made it worse. But I think now we have to be incredibly aggressive about managing it, managing this outbreak among this population. Would it, there's a complexity here that I don't understand between nursing homes um, and hospitals. 
So in this sort of crucial moment, I think it's still going on in large parts of America, maybe it's passed a little bit in Pennsylvania and New York, but that's sort of crucial moment of we don't have enough protective equipment and we don't have enough ventilators. At that crucial moment, all of those things surge to hospitals and none of them surge to nursing homes because the assumption is people in nursing homes will go to hospitals. This is unclear to me because, I mean, if you, I had grandparents in nursing homes and sometimes they would go to hospital, but sometimes they were treated in the nursing home. And so it's unclear to me how nursing homes are seen as sites of, of care. No ventilators would go to nursing homes. Uh, is that? Well, I mean, I I think it depends on the nursing home. There are some skilled nursing facilities that are, you know, vent care specific and term care facilities that deal with ventilator patients. Um, but I think, I think the PPE issues are different. You know, you have in nursing homes, you know, in theory, people are, the patients are not infected with COVID until you have an outbreak. And in theory, the staff are not infected. And so I think the, the PPE estimates have probably been underestimated. Um, and I think in general, people who work in nursing homes uh, um, aren't supposed to work if they're sick. Um, you know, I think now there are PPE requirements because staff, um, there are staff who might be in community settings who are going to be masking, you know, just plain old surgical masks. And I think there was a need to, um, you know, ramp up, in, you know, ramp up um, PPE when there are in fact perhaps mild cases who remain in a nursing home. And then you have, you know, control measures like cohorting, combining patients with COVID in, in the same room or the same hallway or the same floor. Um, but it's a little bit different than some of the hospital situation where you've got acutely ill people with COVID and, you, and, you're, and you're diagnosing it and they're in a unit with just COVID patients and you're protecting healthcare workers. I think in nursing homes, it's almost the opposite. You're, you're, you know, in general, you know, COVID has, you know, has to be introduced into a nursing home. It's a closed facility. And if you've closed the facility to visitors, who's bringing it in? It's got to be the staff. Right. Once it's there, all bets are off. There's all manner of transmission between patient and staff and vice versa. But um, until that happens, you know, in theory, the patients are uninfected and it's the staff who, who brought it in. So what's your philosophy now on testing then? It doesn't seem that we're going to be in any near term uh, able to provide tests for everyone who wants or needs one. We're still going to have to be selective in how we test. Where is your thinking around testing right now? So, so, you know, testing, I think, if you look at the various roadmaps for reopening and um, the, the quote-unquote exit strategy, um, most everyone focuses on testing. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense because right now we've got this, you know, draconian social distancing, you know, going on where we just, we don't know who's infected, so we stay inside and, uh, you know, don't expose ourselves to anyone, don't expose anyone. And ideally, if we had a better handle on this virus and who was infected, we could be much more targeted around isolating those people and being aggressive about identifying their contacts and then quarantining them. And ideally, hopefully that would, you know, take us a lot further in terms of containing this virus without having to just stay in, you know, you know shut inside all the time. So I, I totally believe that we need to be doing that and much more aggressively. Not right now in Philadelphia, and I suspect in many parts of the country, we are only testing 50 pe people who are 50 and older who are sick, who are symptomatic, and healthcare workers who are symptomatic. So we are, and we are probably missing many of mildly, mildly symptomatic people, younger people who are symptomatic, mm -hmm. who are not hospitalized, who are symptomatic. And so I think we have to ramp up testing everybody 
who has um, mild to moderate to severe illness, regardless of whether they're hospitalized, regardless of their profession, and we should be testing their contacts in the same way that we, you know, when we treat sexually transmitted diseases, we assume that people's contacts have the infection, we test them and we treat them. And we should, we should be making the same assumptions here. We should assume that everybody's infected who's a contact, we should test them, and we should quarantine them in ways that are targeted and strategic. And um, on top of that, we have to do extra stuff in nursing homes to keep the disease out of nursing homes, if we can get, ever get it out of nursing homes. I was struck by the quote you, the, that you shared on Twitter that your speaker yesterday talked about with respect to you know, the community resilience piece, because I think that contact tracing approaches here have to be really out of the box. Hmm. The traditional sort of shoe leather epidemiology, you know, health departments assign staff and they interview people and they identify contacts that won't be enough. It hmm. won't work. We're going to have to rely on, I think, communities to help us figure out how to identify contacts and maintain control measures around contacts. I had a question come in actually for you from Mike Fisher, who's in uh, Massachusetts, and he wondered what you thought. It's about contact tracing, and he wondered if you maybe you're familiar with what they've been doing in Massachusetts around contact tracing, or or where anywhere where you may be aware that it's it's working. I, the only thing I've read about Massachusetts, I'd be interested in learning more. That I I think that the state health department is is working with partners in health, and they're looking to uh, hire lots and lots of people and working in community health worker type of capacities to do outreach. Um, yeah, I think that makes great sense. Will it be enough? I don't know. It might be enough, but I think there's I I, I like the idea of using technology to supplement people and I like the idea and I think there's something to be said for people um, working to figure out you know who their contacts are and reaching out to those people um, mm. and you know I think everything again everything really will also come down to testing and making sure we can test people otherwise we're going to miss infections and we're, we're going to be stuck in home at home for another <laughs> couple of months at a time. But meanwhile I mean back to what you were saying earlier about um, I don't know what the right public health term for it is but undercounting of cases and, and every day when I read those numbers I sort of imagine what you would be saying if as I give those numbers but it's you know if we're undercounting and still Georgia is reopening for business mm -hmm. Texas is is reopening for business they don't seem to have aggressive testing um, on the docket so does that mean that in those parts of the country they're just gonna, they're just saying we're just going to accept the circumstances we're going to accept the the results of this I mean what's what's going through the mind of a governor of Georgia or Texas when they don't have the testing in place and they're going ahead to the relaxation of social distance? I'm not sure. I can't speak for them. <laughs> I, think. Uh, I was so hoping you would speak for the governor of Texas, but that's <laughs> at my home state. I, I think it's really risky. Um, yeah. Well, I think, first of all, those places have not even met the quote unquote gating criteria that were in the president's plan for reopening. They haven't had 14 consecutive days of dropping cases. I think they're capitulating to the economic pain and the, and the, and the pressures of the business community and other are placing on them to open up. And I, I think we all experience those and feel those and appreciate those. I mean, they're, they're, these are difficult, really trying times, but I think they are risking, um, you know, huge increases in in um in transmission and in and in cases in those communities i think it's i think it's a challenging situation but i think they're risking a lot of a it's a huge public health risk is what i would say so there's one other thing i wanted to get to with you today and that's uh, maybe a little speculation if you would 
Um, the president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, is out with a statement in which he outlines, and I think in some ways he's echoing maybe the president's, President Trump's articulated plan, although that, that plan seems to miss a lot of details, but Daniels's plan is pretty specific. They're gonna reopen Purdue in the fall. They're gonna do it with um, infection testing, antibody testing, aggressive contact tracing, testing to be done there on campus so that they are under control of the speed of it, as well as demographic sensitive quarantine, social distance, the whole, the whole package. Um, and he says, we can do this. Um, and he says, we'll be back open because, you know, we're putting people's careers and their educations on hold and it's not, and it's not fair. I mean, I know you maybe you haven't had time to read that, but how does that sound to you? Is that, is something like that possible? And if it's, I guess my bigger concern is if that's possible on a university campus, isn't the rest of America going to demand the same thing? I don't, it's, it's a big question, yeah. but any reaction you have to it is valuable to me. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's logical. I mean, the idea being, you know, if, if the outbreak can be contained in that community and then you can really get on top of um, and identify all the new cases through aggressive testing and, and if the university has access to those tools and they work reliably, some of this is to be determined over the coming months, it could work. And if that's the case, shouldn't every university um, have those resources available? Absolutely. <laughs> um, there's a lot of ifs there. There's a lot of ifs there. I hope that plan works. I think it's well-conceived. It, it assumes that, you know, in the coming months, we will have a lot of field testing of many, many different assays for the diagnosis of this infection that they'll be available in points of care or field-based situations and that we can react quickly to those results, um, it could work. It absolutely could work, assuming that there are sufficient assays and tools available and that they work as reliably as we hope they will. Esther Chernak, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. And I see on the schedule that I have you one week from today also. So we have uh, a week in which I'm sure there'll be, I know there'll be new things happening and maybe we'll have a clearer picture of some of these um, reopening strategies. My guess is that, um, you know, once somebody puts an idea forward that seems to get some momentum, everybody in that sector seems to want to get behind it. So maybe we'll have, be able to talk about that in more detail next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks, Esther. Thank you. My pleasure. turn now to my second guest. And as I do that, I want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls. Please do get your questions in using the YouTube live chat function, or you can tweet them at me and my tag me at US of Disaster. My second guest today is Professor Kathy Bergen, and let me introduce her. Kathy is a recognized expert in disaster law, and she presently teaches at Cornell University Law School in Ithaca, New York. Her research extends to humanitarian aid programs and the catastrophic impact of climate change. She's been crucial in promoting disaster law as an academic discipline. She's also a successful advocate. Her team in Haiti established binding precedent in a proceeding before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights 
that reinforced post-disaster human rights obligations. Her work on mass evacuation shelters after Hurricane Katrina is used across the humanitarian sector as a blueprint for protecting displaced survivors. And her knowledge of constitutional standards helped coalition partners in Puerto Rico secure changes in the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria. She is also on the steering committee for Project Blueprint, a policy advocacy organization aimed at promoting a progressive US foreign policy. And I cannot wait to talk to her about each one of these things. Kathy, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi, Scott, thanks for having me. You bet, and I wanna remind everybody, please do get your questions in. Don't wait until the end of the discussion. Try to get them in as early as you, as you can. So, um, Kathy, as I've been doing with um, all of the calls, I'd like to ask you just how things are, go you're in Ithaca, correct? How are things there? Um, yeah, we're in Ithaca, New York, and um, I, they are good, relatively speaking. Um, you know, New York has a um, has been on the forefront of social distancing, and Governor Cuomo um, has issued a number of orders, um, closing schools, closing businesses. He did that, you know, relatively early on. So I think we're all sort of settling in. Um, Having said that, you know, our community is experiencing hardships just like everybody else. We've got a lot of folks out of work, a lot of folks, um, you know, wondering when life is going to get back to normal. Um, but, but I have to say, we have a really strong community here in Ithaca. Um, our local leaders have been really um, on the forefront of, you know, keeping us ahead of this, um, implementing measures that have worked to flatten the curve. I think our um, we have only just over a hundred positive cases after a few thousand, couple or a few thousand tests being conducted. I think that's lower than a lot of people expected. And I think it's because we're pretty committed as a community to getting this right. Um, we've also had a number of groups get together and expand access to um, food banks. Um, there is a new coalition that's supporting small businesses. So, you know, it's hard just like everywhere else, but I'm, I'm super proud of our local leaders and I'm so proud of our community for coming together around this um, to ease the burden a little bit. I don't want to say it's easy at all, but um, I think we're doing the best we can. And are you teaching right now? I am. I am. Yeah. So I'm at Cornell Law School. I teach an adjunct course on disaster law and human rights. And um, just as this was starting to ramp up and schools were going online, um, we were getting into the paper presentation portion of the class. So our transition has been pretty easy. Um, instead of meeting face-to-face -face as a group to critique mm -hmm. everybody's work, we meet online and we do it that way. Um, it's tricky because Cornell has a, a very international, diverse student body. So, um, you know, some of my students are dealing with pretty significant hardship. So um, we've been trying to accommodate that as best we can. So you started teaching a disaster law course, presumably in January or early February, and then this pandemic has unfolded throughout your course. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but That's um, yeah, surprisingly, um, as originally designed, this particular course doesn't really cover pandemics. Um, we cover more uh, the disasters that you know we in the United States typically hear about on the news. Um, 
cyclones, hurricanes, earthquakes, all that kind of stuff. Um, we did pivot a little bit um, during the class session that we hold online Monday night. I always try and include a small presentation about something that's happening um, that's happened that week regarding um, coronavirus, and I've asked my students to send me questions and address it that way. Um, I do also teach a, a course on U.S. disaster law in the fall, and I'm completely revising that as well. It's, it's going to be a lot of you know, stuff that's happened in the past few months so um okay. hopefully students will find that worthwhile uh, it couldn't be more unfortunately timely uh, but very first guest that we had on COVID calls Gigi Granval who's at Johns Hopkins um she was uh preparing to start the first week of teaching her 1918 pandemic class which had already right. been planned and ready to go <laughs> before this um so I wanted to to go back, maybe get a little bit of the background of how you came into this uh, arena of, of law in practice and in research. And I know that Hurricane Katrina was an important moment in that for you. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Hurricane Katrina was sort of my, my turning point um, in a lot of ways. So I was teaching at South Texas College of Law in Houston at the time. I was teaching constitutional law, which is a fantastic course to teach. It was the course I wanted to teach, so I was lucky to get into it um, right away. Um, but I was in Houston when Katrina hit, and Houston was a reception city for folks coming out of Louisiana and the Gulf Coast generally, but mostly from New Orleans. And it was strictly as sort of a, a volunteer effort that, you know, I was watching the news one night and the broadcaster was down at one of the shelters saying, you know, this is the place where the buses are going to come in and there's going to be a lot of folks coming to stay at the Astrodome. And I called a friend uh, who I was working with at the time and I said, I think we need to go down there based on all the reports. This is going to be a little bit chaotic. And mm -hmm. so we did that. And um, we were there the first night folks started coming in and, you know, by the bus load. And we, we stayed there for about three weeks. We would teach our courses during the day. Um, we would go home and take an afternoon nap. And then we'd do what we called the night shift at the Astrodome. And, and a lot of um, what we did was basically just kind of filling gaps that I think were overlooked by uh, you know, the official relief um, operation at the time. Um, there were, in the facility that we would, would frequent, there was a, a, like a, a table with doctors and nurses dispensing medicine and whatnot, and they were consistently running low on supplies. So we would be the pharmacy runners, and we would go and rack up our credit card bills trying to um, you know, buy, we talked about this the other night, like whatever the, the package of pills is that you can't buy in bulk. You have to like buy two and pay for it, buy two more and pay for it. Um, so we did that for several weeks, and um, it was fine, served a need. But we also noticed that, um, you know, things kind of get, miscommunicated when there's a big relief effort like that. Um, when things calmed down after a couple of weeks, we walked around the, the setting of this, you know, big facility. There were, you know, maybe four or five buildings. And we actually discovered a, a medical tent with, you know, a legitimate medical operation. They were um, giving patients dialysis. They were dispensing insulin. There were doctors and nurses running around caring for people. And the doctors and nurses that we were talking to at the Astrodome weren't even aware that that facility was there, basically right across the street. <laughs> so, so that was sort of our first kind of foray into, oh, you know, things, you can do a lot of good in a disaster situation, but things kind of get missed. Um, 
from there, you know, I got involved with more of the legal aspect. I was a supervisor for students who went to New Orleans and handled cases dealing with um, uh, folks who were being evicted um, and folks who were having problems with the um, FEMA trailers that they were living in. So we did a lot of work around that. Um, and fast forward five years after Katrina, the earthquake hit in Haiti in 2010. And I received an email from someone who's now a friend, Brian Kincannon, who was the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti at the time, you know, basically putting a call out for help from lawyers and law profs who would have an interest in helping out in Haiti. And that's how I got involved with projects down there. So you, um, you talked about teaching disaster law and you identify yourself as sort of, you know, in the vanguard of this, of this move. What, it, what are some of the perennial problems that you saw in, in Katrina and then also in Haiti that just had not been imagined in terms of the need for either specific, I guess, legal services, but even maybe the law itself, like places the law was unclear or that um, needed to be, to be altered? Yeah, I think, you know, um, Katrina and Haiti were sort of watershed events because they were so, um, so catastrophic that people in our lifetimes had no actual living memory of events like that. Um, but for maybe some, some older generations who dealt with some pretty horrific hurricanes, but, um, and there was a lot of press around the event, right? Like I was actually in Miami when Hurricane Andrew hit several years before that. And that, that was a, a significant storm. There's no question, but, but we didn't have a 24 hour news cycle back then the way we did during Katrina and, you know, more so in Haiti. So I think that made a difference in terms of um, how we collectively responded to those events and how we reflected on them. Um, for me, um, you know, there were a lot of legal changes that were implemented after Katrina to fix some of the things that went wrong. But I think the lesson is that unless you anticipate um, as best you can and prepare for the most catastrophic event that you can imagine, when it hits, you're really gonna be out of luck because then you're just gonna be trying to keep up. And I think that's exactly what happened with the coronavirus pandemic, right? Is that, you know, now we know that obviously there were experts who saw the warning signs, there were um, situations being gamed out and the president administration just you know, wasn't paying attention to that and dropped the ball and now here we are and now we're trying to make up for lost time. So, um, so to me, the biggest lesson is, you know, it might be a rare risk, but the risk is so catastrophic that it needs to be prepared for. And we need to find a way to convince governments to invest not only in preparing for the catastrophe itself, but also the social fallout, right? So Dr. Chernock was just speaking about, um, you know, you had asked her about, you know, what's going on with these governors in Georgia and Texas who want to reopen the economy. And, and it's true, like, we, you know, we don't know what's in their heart of hearts. We can only go by what they're talking about, by what they're saying publicly. But, you know, they're saying that we need to reopen the economy to get it going again, to, you know, support businesses. And I think, you know, she's right. They're probably leaning on pro-business interests. Um, but at the same time, you know, the solution to healing the economic wounds that have been caused by this pandemic are multifold. We could reopen the economy with significant risk, unknown risk, or 
we could have provided a social safety net to avoid some of the fallout that we're seeing now. And so I take that as another lesson from Katrina, which is, you know, there are things that happen after a disaster that are reflections of existing social problems. And here we are, right? People don't, people's health insurance is tied to their employment if they're lucky enough to have it. And so once they lose their job, they're losing their health insurance. Um, you know, people don't have, you know, enough money in the bank to support them for the three months that FEMA says, you know, three weeks or whatever it is that FEMA says you need to be prepared. So, so we have made deliberate choices at a national level and at state levels to invest in things that don't promote resilience. And we're seeing the fallout of that now. The choices are not continue the lockdown or open the economy. The choices provide a social safety net so that when we are ready to open the economy safely, we can do it then, but not a minute earlier. We haven't prepared for that. So, uh, first of all, I mean, as you said, you would think after Katrina and after Haiti, and I think even though those were not pandemics, but there were plenty of health issues connected to both of those. Mm -hmm. and this is what I was talking with Kathleen Tierney about yesterday. There should have been plenty of empirical data from those to expand the imagination of the government sufficiently to plan for a disaster of the scale that we're facing now. That's, that's, my, that's my view. And we have a legal infrastructure in the United States that, that serves as the backbone of bureaucracy that should be constantly planning mm -hmm. for this kind of a disaster. Where did I go wrong in what I just said? Or, or what have I not captured there? Because we do believe, I believe that there's, in fact, I think I can go find the statutes, that there's an infrastructure there that's supposed to provide for the planning and the preparedness and the acting on those plans in the midst of a, of a disaster. Yeah, nothing you've said is wrong, but I'll tell you, it's not even that complicated. So Haiti, for example. So Haiti's health infrastructure was decimated in the 2010 earthquake. Fast forward a few months after that, and reports of cholera started to come, started to rise from you know, villages outside of Port-au-Prince, but then eventually kind of making its way across the country. Um, so cholera ended up being a catastrophic epidemic in Haiti, a country that had never seen cholera in its reported history. 10,000 people died, up to a million people became ill. And, and it happened in the aftermath of an earthquake that destroyed the infrastructure. So you have these two things sort of happening in Haiti at the same time. Now, the cholera outbreak was basically a decades-long phenomenon. Haiti has still not recovered from it because we haven't had enough international investment, including investment from the United States in rebuilding that infrastructure. Well, here we are in 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic hits and the Trump administration is continuing to deport Haitian immigrants back to Haiti. And reports are now surfacing that some of those deportees are testing positive for coronavirus when they're back in Haiti. So the irony here is that we are returning Haitian deportees to a country that is far from equipped to handle even the most modest outbreak of coronavirus. But we're also doing it under similar circumstances that led to cholera to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because cholera was brought to Haiti 
by United Nations peacekeepers who were also not tested before they were deployed. So this is the second time in 10 years that Haiti is a country that is basically receiving um, in, infectious pandemics from other countries and it's not equipped to handle it. So, so yes, I agree with you. We have all these structures in place to be prepared and promote international resilience. But at the end of the day, when the United States has a policy of exporting coronavirus to other countries, all of those sophisticated sort of mechanisms and structures are secondary to the fact that we're making really dangerous decisions for other people. So I guess now is the part of the conversation we're gonna to have to ask you a bunch of questions then you're gonna sort of uh, explain to me whether they're legal or not. And, and we can also talk about whether or not they're ethical too, but is it legal for the United States to deport people who have a known illness, a life-threatening illness in the midst of their illness to, to other countries? Can Department of Homeland Security do, are we in violation of some international Accords when we do that? Yeah, there have been advocates who have said that, you know, this violates, um, you know, international norms against refoulement. Um, it could possibly, in some circumstances, amount to torture, which is a violation of international law, obviously. Um, the question is, how do we enforce that? That's always the tricky problem when it comes to international human rights laws. The other problem is that we're dealing with an administration that does not see international human rights law as legitimate as legitimate legal mechanism. Um, these complaints have been brought to the attention of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, they are not conducting widespread testing of deportees. Their policy is to test people who show symptoms. I think they've lowered the fever threshold a little bit over the past couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, as your last guest talked about, the real problem here is the risk of asymptomatic infection. And as far as we've seen, based on the research we've done, the Department of Homeland Security has absolutely no intention of widespread, te widespread testing of people they're about to deport to other countries, notwithstanding the fact that there have been outbreaks of um, coronavirus in ICE detention facilities. Um, coupled with that, you know, um, there have been cases reported in Guatemala, Haiti, and Mexico of deportees who have tested positive upon arriving in those countries. Thousands of immigrants have been deported over the past couple of months to El Salvador, Honduras, a couple other countries mm -hmm. in the region. So, so the potential for this to explode is, is a big problem. Um, in the case of Guatemala, because that situation got some press and there was sort of a, a a big handful of folks who came off one flight that ended up testing positive. Um, DHS has suspended deportations to that country pending a CDC review, but there's no plan as far as we can tell to, to suspend those deportations and find other solutions to that, that issue um, in the short term. As a matter of fact, the Trump administration has threatened countries who have suggested they're gonna stop um, planes from landing within their jurisdiction, the Trump administration has threatened um, them with withholding um, visa privileges. So we're, we're trying to strong arm these folks into taking back deportees and we're not testing them for the coronavirus. So yes, there may be international human rights laws that come into play, but how we enforce that is the real problem. Is it sufficiently complicated that you could imagine a different administration doing the same thing, Republican or Democrat? or it's not so complicated and it's just that the Trump administration is, as with so many other things, is sui generis doing its own thing? Yeah, um, 
I can't really say. I mean, the administrations in the past who have been um, more thoughtful about human rights still have pretty bad um, records when it comes to immigration. So it's a tricky issue. Um, I don't want to say I have confidence in a lot of folks to do the right thing on this particular issue, um, but there are alternatives, right? So there are lawsuits, for example, um, that are seeking the release of especially vulnerable um, detainees and also prisoners. Um, and, and those lawsuits suggest that um, courts have been somewhat sympathetic in forcing the government's in charge, whether it's federal government or state government, to review the inmates they're holding or the detainees they're holding and figure out who's at high risk and release them under some kind of humanitarian circumstances, at-home release, for example, um, if they're at high risk, if they're elderly, have a pre-existing condition. Um, so the courts have been a recourse in certain circumstances, but again, they're, they're limited, the relief they're offering is pretty limited and targeted to high-risk individuals and not folks who are you know, relatively healthy and asymptomatic. Let me stick with international law for a second. I read today that the Attorney General of Missouri is going to sue China yeah. on the grounds that they have withheld um, critical public health information, which then has led to the citizens of Missouri uh, uh, experiencing economic harm and personal harm and, and death. Uh, clearly that has a political um, valence to it. Um, but can, I can't believe I'm about to ask this question, can the Attorney General of Missouri sue China? Um, you know, I like to say, honestly, like you can do whatever you want until someone says you can't. So <laughs> could you file a lawsuit or she file a lawsuit? I don't know who the Attorney General of that state is, but could they file a lawsuit somewhere? Sure. Um, you know, it depends, you know, whether or not they're going to get something out of it depends on a lot of things. Um, one is where are they going to file the lawsuit? So um, under the WHO constitution, the dispute resolution mechanism allows for um, parties to that organization to bring a claim to the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. But that would be like the United States, for example, it wouldn't necessarily be a representative of a state. So it would be tricky to invoke that as a remedy. Um, is there some domestic remedy that they could try to invoke? Could they sue China in a federal district court in the United States? Um, that's going to be tricky because there are sovereign immunity protections that apply to national countries um, and protect them from being sued under a lot of circumstances in the United States. From what I've read on this issue, because this is something a lot of lawyers and law professors have been talking about, um, you know, the consensus seems to be that that kind of pursuit of justice is an uphill battle. Um, in part because there's, there's really no structural mechanism to obtain relief under the circumstances we've been presented with. Um, you know, again, the WHO constitution provides for an ICJ suit to proceed with the correct parties, but it's really not sure what standard China would be held to uh, unless we look to regulations and there's a question about whether or not the relations would be the regulations would be admissible in certain cases so it's pretty complex it's never been tried as far as I've uh, seen so this would be a case of first impression we'd have to see how it goes well I mean I think on the surface level obviously it's a it's a political gesture but I think there's 
and, and I don't want to give the AG of Missouri too much credit, but I think below that, it, it is a quite interesting conceptual problem, as you've just said, about, you know, what do we, to what standards do we hold different countries when it comes to being open and transparent in a complicated set of polities to provide health information, which may be endangering lives in other countries. You referenced the WHO, which should be the body here who is making sure that information is flowing, even from an authoritarian society to a democratic society, right? But now we're seemingly cutting off funding to the WHO and pulling out of the WHO. Right. Right, okay. Right, but here's the thing too, right? So, so lawyers look at um, legal avenues for relief, but we also have to consider the implications of that. So what would happen if the United States or Missouri sued China for lack of transparency in, under these circumstances? Well, that means in two years, China is gonna sue the United States for lack of transparency. And so one of the things that keeps countries from pursuing legal remedies in these circumstances is the fear that in a couple of years, they're going to be the defendant. Um, so yeah, these situations involve legal issues, but obviously international diplomatic issues as well. You know, the thing about China that's also um, sort of a wrinkle is that, you know, they're the major producer of personal protection equipment and other things that we need to control the virus. So. Um, you know, if the United States were to ever think about bringing an action or in some way getting compensation from China, they'd have to think about the pros and cons of doing that because China could stop supplies and then where would we be? Yeah, well, up until early March, apparently they were also a major consumer of American produced PPE as well. So, you know, there's the, the law and then there's the complicated sort of geopolitics of somehow trying to find it. Thank, that's, okay. thank you for expanding my thinking there. Let's talk a little bit about the United States. Can President Trump force uh, Drexel University to reopen? No, no, no. And I say that three times because it's the only question. Are you sure? I, it's the only question I can answer as a lawyer, like definitively, because so many times when people ask me questions, I always have to answer with, well, it depends. But um, can President Trump reach into the borders of a state and tell them how to manage, um, you know, their police powers? Absolutely not. The Tenth Amendment is clear that any power that is not expressly delegated to the federal government falls to the states. And all of these orders that involve social distancing and closing of private businesses, those are orders that are being enacted by governors or mayors pursuant to their police power. Now, uh, could the federal government flex some muscle in this area? Absolutely. So Congress, for example, has the power to tax and spend for the general welfare. Congress couldn't pass a statute forcing the state to open Drexel University or forcing New York to open its public schools, but it could hand the states a lot of money in exchange for doing that. And Congress does that all the time. Um, you know, we'll provide billions of dollars in small business loans and support if you start to open your, your economies in the way we suggest. That wouldn't really be problematic from a constitutional standpoint. I think it would be hard for Congress um, to get enough votes to do that because you know we tend to think of Congress and the states as separate entities. But who votes in Congress? Well, you know, 
my senators and representatives at the federal level are certainly probably not going to vote for that kind of package that allows the federal government to force, say, Governor Cuomo to rescind some of his orders. He's an exceedingly popular governor at this moment in time. Um, so they're not going to do that. So I don't think Congress has a lot of leverage there politically at this moment. That might change as things go on. Um, can the president do something? Not really. Um, you know, the president has the power of the pulpit, if, if you want to explain it that way under the present circumstances. Um, but, you know, he can, you know, the White House can issue guidelines, the administration can say, you know, it would be great for the economies to open for all these particular reasons. But the president is constrained by the Constitution, even during times of national emergency. And if you can't identify an express source of authority for the president to do something, the president can't actually do it. Could he try? Yes, absolutely. But there are there are constitutional restraints that would come into play that would make that very unlikely. So you described a situation there that Congress can provide carrots to states um, to enact certain kinds of, of behaviors at the state level and reach down even into municipalities. But let's talk about sticks for a second. President Trump threatened California after the wildfires a few years ago that he, unless California started pursuing certain kinds of um, uh, forest management practices, although those were never articulated, um, that he would cut off FEMA aid to the state. So can, can the executive branch use the stick and um, not spend money that's been appropriated or stand in the way of executive agencies from discharging their duties? And you could imagine I can imagine a scenario in which he could threaten to do that in Pennsylvania. The governor won't reopen the schools. Well, therefore, we're not going to, no money from the Department of Education is going to go to Pennsylvania until they reopen Drexel University. I'm fixating on this. On yeah, this yeah, problem. sure. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, so I was really confused when he, I remember when he tweeted that out um, a while ago about the California wildfires. And, and I just had so many questions because I didn't know if he was talking about you know, stopping future aid from going to California? Uh, was he talking about somehow rescinding existing contracts that, you know, the federal government was supporting for responding to the wildfires? Um, was he talking about future emergency or disaster declarations that he was going to deny? It was so confusing because, you know, under the main statute that typically applies to the disasters that we're used to, used to seeing, the Stafford Act, the president has unfettered discretion to declare a disaster or not. And, you know, he gets advice from FEMA and there's a whole, you know, list of criteria that FEMA is supposed to look at when formulating its, um, its recommendation to the president. But ultimately, it's the president's call. So, so what President Trump could do if it really wanted to stick it to California is simply deny future declarations for any reason whatsoever or no reason at all. Um, the remedy for that would be political. It would not be legal because the statute doesn't provide for any congressional oversight when it comes to the declaration process itself. The oversight comes with respect to uh, funding. Um, you know, would Congress uh, pass supplemental funding for certain types of disasters or veto the president's um, decision not to support that? So that's where the oversight comes into play. Um, yeah, so that, that was really confusing to me when he did that. and. But I think also that is reflective of um, the circumstance we're living in because, you know, I look at these questions that 
are rising with respect to what can the president do or Congress and how, how are the states managing this? I look at that from a structural perspective, who has authority to do what? And that's because I, like I teach con law, it's kind of in my blood. But from a disaster perspective, really the most critical thing for lawmakers and government officials to do is to build confidence among their constituents. Because the government is supposed to have a plan and in order for the plan to work, it needs to get everybody to go along. And we want them to go along voluntarily. We don't want right. to force people into staying home or leaving their homes ahead of the hurricane. And, and this kind of um, messaging that's coming from the White House, whether it's within the context of coronavirus or those threats to withhold funding from California, it just kind of gives you whiplash because, because you know, I wonder as a resident of New York, am I supposed to be listening to Governor Cuomo? Am I supposed to be listening to my local public health officials? when President Trump is telling me that they have it all wrong. And, and that's really going to undermine sort of the, the team spirit that we need in order to control this particular type of pandemic. So, so what's happening now that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is problematic from a constitutional standpoint, but it's also problematic from a disaster management standpoint. So it, it seems like then if I understand you right, I mean, there's the law, but then there's also this assumption, and I think even in our national incident management system, that what you would expect is that coordination is really the prerogative of the federal government. And they wanna create a structure in which communication is clear and coordinated across 50 states. Yep. So that you don't get into these kind of issues about whether or not you should be believing your mayor or your governor or your president. It's consistent, maybe with a few little tweaks here and there, but it's a consistent message across the land so that we don't get into these issues of, um, am I legally at jeopardy if I don't close my business when two different entities are telling me different things? And I think sure. a lot of business owners were facing that even two weeks ago. Right. And I think it's a problem, too, because, you know, if you're not schooled in the law, you, you're kind of trained to, you know, listen to the president. The president's in charge. The president's supposed to have our best interests at heart. And even something as simple as, you know, issuing guidelines. I, I think everyday folks don't think, um, don't intuitively know that a guideline isn't necessarily a directive. And so what do you do with that? So I think it's important for those of us who, who who are used to kind of working within this realm to explain to our friends and our loved ones sort of, you know, what, what capacity all of these representatives and, and government leaders have. The president's recommendations are just that, they're a recommendation, but nobody's overriding a, a governor's order. And I think people need to understand that. So let me um, get into, just since we're talking about governors for a second, there's been some, to me, seemingly some gray area here. Um, can the governor of one state stop someone traveling into their state from another state and demand that they produce um, some medical papers certifying that they don't have COVID-19? Can they force you to um, undertake a temperature check? Um, can, they, can they do that? Um, so this is one of those maybe, maybe not questions. Mm. Um, so uh, as a default matter, it's Congress that has constitutional authority to regulate what we call interstate commerce, right? The stuff that crosses a state line. And Congress does that all the time. You can transport certain things across a, a, a border and you can't transport other things, you know, guns, children, et cetera. Um, but can states exercise that same authority? 
There is a doctrine in constitutional law called the Dormant Commerce Clause, and it references sort of this invisible restraint that is placed on states and prohibits them from enacting laws that substantially interfere with interstate commerce. So obviously, if Florida, for example, issues a directive that says nobody from New York can come in the state or anybody from New York coming in the state needs to be quarantined, that's gonna, that's gonna put a substantial burden on interstate commerce. And so if a, if a statute like that were challenged, the court would have to balance whether or not the state's interest in the order outweighs the national interest in the free flow of you know, interstate economic activity. Um, in this case, obviously, you know, the goal is compelling, right? We're trying to stop the spread of a, a national global pandemic. But the question would be whether or not the states are doing that with, you know, as narrowly as possible. And so, so the quarantines would probably be less troubling from a constitutional standpoint than a wall at the border of a state, right? Because they'd be saying, you know, you can come into the state, but given the inherent risks of the situation, we want to hold you up in a hotel for 14 days. We're going to give you a test if you're symptomatic, and then you can come in if everything's fine. So, so I could see a court saying that kind of restriction is permissible under the circumstance. A ban where you keep people out is different. That, that's more burdensome, right? You're not giving them a chance to cross the line to participate in interstate commerce in any way. And I think courts would be more skeptical and want to lean on Congress, um, you know, to say, you know, if Congress wants to step in here and, and make a decision either way, it should. Now, the caveat to that is, you know, when Florida started talking about doing that, I, I tried to think of all the different ways that one could assert a constitutional challenge. And the Dormant Commerce Clause is certainly one. But there are also prohibitions on discrimination. And so one question would be, you know, why is Florida imposing an onerous restriction on people coming in from New York when we have clusters of outbreaks in Washington State or Ohio or Michigan? So that would be another hurdle that a state like Florida would have to overcome because it's absolutely clear that a state cannot burden interstate commerce simply for the purpose of sort of sticking it to another state. So that would be an issue as well. I see. Well, thank you for explaining that. Um, I, I, would, I have more questions. We're kind of up on time, but I got started a few minutes late. Do you have 10 more minutes? Is that okay? Or do you have do. to run teach? You do? Oh, good. Oh, that's, that's great. great. Yep. Um, I, I want to get to some questions that are coming in here. Um, and um, I have one here from uh, Misra Ali, um, who's also in New York. And I'm going to send you, actually, she's got several questions, great questions here, but I'm going to pick up on one part of it that she asks and comes back to this question of international law. Do you think that there should be a, an international disaster penal code? In other words, that, um, that we should go even further um, uh, beyond sort of principles of international law and actually come up with maybe structures of, of penalty for um, you know, sort of breaching uh, rights across borders. Yeah, so with respect to disasters specifically, um, I'd have to think about the, the penal aspect of it, sort of the pros and cons of that, but I can tell you relatedly what's happening now and has been happening for the past 10 years or so is that um, the United Nations is negotiating the terms of um, a convention, um, you know, it's not a convention yet, but it's in the draft article stage um, that was approved, I think, last year by the General Assembly. Um, 
the Convention on the Rights of Persons in the Event of a Natural Disaster. And the idea is to promote more international cooperation among states um, to sort of um, concretize the idea that states have a right to ask for international aid. And it really should be, you know, a goal, not necessarily an obligation, but a goal of other states to respond to um, states who have been hard hit. The, the sticking point on getting countries to sort of come around to that, that convention was that nobody wanted to be on the hook for actually providing aid as a matter of law, right? They want to do it when, it's, um, when it makes sense for their own security purposes, um, you know, and, and other reasons. But as far as holding states liable for not providing aid, there hasn't been a big consensus um, of states being willing to do that. As a matter of fact, the convention that's been drafted doesn't have a remedy section at all. So as far as you know, a state not complying with these proposed articles, what you do about it is sort of anybody's guess. Um, you know, what I tell my students is that you know, disaster law comes in many forms. It could be um, you know, a, a statute that a particular country adopts to deal with disasters. It could be an international human rights convention that applies to disasters, even though it's not disaster specific. Mm -hmm. So if there's a country that, you know, decides that certain ethnic groups in their jurisdiction are going to get a head, you know, a lead on aid, well, that's discrimination and that's going to violate a, a host of international conventions and hopefully there will be remedies that would attach to that. So I tell my students it's important to find the existing law um, in place and frame your issue in a way that fits into that convention. So let me turn to a couple of other um, issues in the United States that I think are going to be upon us very soon, if, if not already. Um, one of them has to do with, so when we saw these protests, and I think they were pretty orchestrated protests. I'm not sure how grassroots they were at different state houses over the weekend. Um, but calling governors to task on relaxing social distancing, I think within that space, I think it's fair to anticipate that there will be challenges over religious liberty soon. Um, and in some states, I know there have been um, religious figures who have not, who have flouted the, the command of governors to, to you know, close down. They've gone ahead and hold services. I think that doesn't represent the majority. I think most have followed those principles, but it, my guess is there's gonna be pressure on religious liberty grounds in states where things are a little slower to reopen, like maybe New Jersey or California. Will those, uh, what's your thinking on that? And, and, could that stand? I mean, do people have, um, I mean, their constitutional protections for freedom of speech, the, the, don't they trump the governor of California's desire for me to stay home? Um, well, um, this scenario actually played out in Kansas recently. Mm -hmm. And um, so Kansas issued a, basically a shelter in place order and included an exemption for religious gatherings. So basically everybody stays home, private businesses are gonna shut down, but we're gonna let um, religious groups gather for worship. Um, subsequent to that, the governor rescinded that part of the order and basically extended the stay at home directive for everybody, religious gatherings or not. And she was sued on account of it. The, 
the challenge when it came before the court, the court sidestepped to the First Amendment religious challenge and ended up ruling um, based on the way the state's emergency statute had been drawn. But, but it raises a question about um, whether or not the government is obligated to create an exemption and then stick with it for religious organizations. And by and large, the constitutional rule on this is no, because the First Amendment is really, really tricky when it comes to religion. So on the one hand, states are prohibited from establishing a religion, from favoring religion, um, but at the same time, you can't discriminate against religion. And sometimes those two objectives conflict. So for example, when the governor issued her initial order directing everybody to stay home and limiting public gatherings, but left an exemption for religious organizations, one could argue that that violates the First Amendment because it's favoring religion, right? right. right? Um, but at the same time, if she applies a blanket restriction that includes religious organizations, then she's burdening religion, right? So those things are really tricky. Um, the Supreme Court's general rule is that a state is not gonna get in trouble by passing a generally applicable law that happens to apply to religious entities. Um, nor is it gonna get in trouble for exempting religious entities from broad-based orders if its goal is to honor constitutional principles, right? There has to be something more showing, you know, specific favoritism towards religion that would get the government in trouble. So, um, so no, there's no constitutional requirement that religious worshipers be given a pass on social distancing orders. It's really up to the states in, in that regard. The other one I wanted to ask you about was the status of incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think as Esther was talking about the sort of predictable outbreaks in nursing homes, and I think now the predictable outbreaks, it seems to be in the penal system, in the elder care system, and in the uh, meatpacking and probably agribusiness sector, we're gonna see these, these cases. So, um, if incarcerated uh, prisoners get sick with COVID, do they have some particular claim in, in that regard? Shouldn't it, doesn't it, does it fall to states or to, I mean, it gets so complicated. I don't even know how to ask the question because we have private prisons, we have public prisons, we have county, municipal, state level, but is there a general sense that prisoners need to be protected from a pandemic or not? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it really just comes down to whether or not um, appropriate measures are being put in place to keep prisoners safe. And there are federal prison regulations, there are state prison regulations that require, you know, relevant authorities to provide, you know, basic, provide for basic needs. So water, sanitation facilities, etc. And so I see the prison lawsuits that are being brought now as sort of an outgrowth of general prison litigation, right? I mean, prison litigation is going on all the time, challenging the conditions inside those facilities as being substandard. Um, and this simply adds another complicated layer to that. It simply ups the obligation on the part of the folks in, who are in control to make sure social distancing is being practiced to the extent it's possible, which in a number of prisons, it's not. Um, and that's why actually under the CARES Act, 
uh, the attorney general was given authority to declare an emergency in federal prisons, for example. And he did that. And, and as a result, some of the rules that restrict um, the release of prisoners have been relaxed. So for example, there's a, a federal regulation that says you can't release prisoners um, to a home monitoring situation unless they've served, I think it was you know, 75% or 90% of their, their terms, something like that. And that's, that's been relaxed so that um, if, you know, if there's a risk of infection in a particular prison and there are inmates that don't pose um, a heightened danger either because you know, they've been rehabilitated or their age or what have you, those folks can be released um, pursuant to the agen attorney general's new order. Now, there's some inconsistency about whether or not that order is still in place. Um, the attorney general issued an order, but then the Bureau of Prisons said, no, we don't read it that way. Um, so there's, there's confusion among inmates, among folks who run the inmates, among their families about whether or not that rule applies and, and who can be released and who can't, which again is another example of really mismanaging the pandemic. Um, basically from the top down. So it's a big problem. I want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and Kathy Bergen. Kathy, I still have questions here that we're going to have to get to another time. I hope maybe I can get you back for a follow-up conversation. It's been so illuminating to get your um, answers to these questions about the law, but also about philosophy of law in, in disaster. And thanks for everything you're doing. And we didn't actually, I should, maybe you can give a quick, as we close out, tell us what Project Blueprint is. Oh yeah, Project Blueprint, I'm really excited about it. So it's a new organization um, focusing on US foreign policy and you know, promoting a progressive foreign policy agenda, seeking to, uh, seeking to sort of um, you know, remedy past wrongs and get you know, whatever the next generation, of, whatever the next administration will be, get them on the right path and just making the United States um, more responsible, more conscientious of the decisions they make with regard to foreign policy, um, how those decisions actually touch the lives of people abroad. And one of the things that we're doing is we're bringing a team of advisory council members together um, and relying on their insight when it comes to proposing um, policy recommendations. Because you know, so, something that happens in the United States particularly is that you know, there's a bunch of folks who know a lot about foreign policy who never leave the United States and we make sort of top-down decisions for everybody else. And we have a really strong commitment to um, listening to people who are affected by U.S. foreign policy. And so the organizations that we've partnered with have a presence on the ground in a number of countries around the world. And so we're, we're relying on their experience and their wisdom and promoting foreign policy here at home. Thanks for that, Kathy. And you're on Twitter, you're uh, at Disaster Lawyer, is that right? Or, That's right. Okay. Kathy's a great follow on Twitter at Disaster Lawyer, and we'll hope to get you back for a future COVID calls. Please come back and join me tomorrow when we'll be talking about public health history in Philadelphia with David Barnes from the University of Pennsylvania and Michael Udell from Drexel University. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock. Thanks again, Kathy. Thanks, Scott.